whoever you are, wherever you are, and whenever it is, you are catching some brainwaves coming to you from the banks of the murky and hasty St. Vrain River and almost always sunny Longmont, Colorado. I'm Becky Peters, and along with Ben Cobb, we are honored to bring giants in education to the earbuds of busy teachers to help us all be more informed, inspired, and connected educators. And our guest on this episode is not just a giant in education, but she's also a cult leader, literally. In just a few moments, we'll get to our interview with Jennifer Gonzalez, the founder and host of the most popular education podcast on the planet, The Cult of Pedagogy. Yes, and we both were nerding out hardcore because I think we both have been listening to The Cult of Pedagogy for a long time, and it was a huge inspiration for our show. But as we were thinking about all the different topics we could broach with Jen Gonzalez, she has had a hundred plus episodes. She's keynoted the biggest education conference on the planet as well. Uh, She also has a YouTube channel with 30,000 subscribers. She's just a wealth of information, and we really wanted to get the most out of our conversation with her. And I think for both Becky and I, we've had the quote ruminating in our heads after talking to uh, Cami Thorderson and Alyssa Gallagher, authors of the Design Thinking for School Leaders, just that quote that culture eats strategy for breakfast. And thinking to ourselves that this is the time of year in schools where Kids might be looking forward to the summer, they're coming off spring break, state testing has their spirits down perhaps, and it's really a positive classroom culture that's going to lift that. Uh, And we know that in buildings right now that teachers are maybe applying for new jobs and there's postings and there's a lot of worries and fears out there, and it's a positive school culture that gets us through all that. So in this episode, we talk about ways that kids can talk more and improve your your. Uh, classroom culture as well as teacher self-care and tons of tangible tips that you can bring into class tomorrow. So without further ado, here she is. I am Jennifer Gonzalez. I am the mind behind Cult of Pedagogy. I'm a mother of three kids aged 10, I'm sorry, 11, 13, and 14. I was a middle school English teacher for about seven plus years and then uh, I transitioned to teaching teachers at the college level for a couple of years. And then I started my website in 2013, and that's pretty much what I've been doing since then full-time, is just um, doing stuff to help teachers do their work better. We, I mean, we're huge fans of Cult of Pedagogy, and, and I mean, you can't, you don't say the word without people nodding in agreement. Like, yes, obviously, that's something that we go to all the time. How did that part of it get started? The What, what is Cult of Pedagogy? Well, when I first started it, I, I wanted to create a place online for people like me who were just super into teaching. I was always the person in the faculty lounge who wanted to like talk strategy and like everybody else was sort of thinking, you know, no, we don't want to talk shop here. And Or they would just be kind of negative about the kids or they'd be negative about the administration. And while I saw problems, I just, I was super into the work. I was just really into this craft of ours that is like, we can just always be getting better at it. And so I wanted to, I I had always wished that I could find more people like me. So I wanted to create that place online. And I, I guess it sort of started just because when I was teaching teachers, I was already starting to do some stuff for them kind of online. And I thought I could really make this much bigger. I could reach a lot more people. And I really enjoyed helping teachers learn techniques and methodology and and give them advice. And so I just started a blog and then everything else kind of evolved from, from that. You know, I, I started a podcast pretty quickly after I started the blog and made some videos for YouTube and then started creating some classroom products and 
it just kind of grew. That's so cool. And so which part of that do you, which, which is your favorite, the blogging, the YouTube, the podcasts, like how do you enjoy reaching people and what do you think is most effective really? The podcast has become, I'd say, it's funny because all the different pieces pull on different skill sets. Mm. I'm, I think I'm the most comfortable with the podcast because I don't have to dress up for it. And um, I can kind of, I can plan things ahead of time and I can edit out mistakes. And so I can deliver something that's really good quality versus, you know, speaking in public someplace or something that's a lot more nerve wracking. But I also really like the blog post. I really, um, I love the fact that every other week I can just pick something that I'm really interested in and just dive into it and and research it and try to put together something that a really busy teacher can kind of snack on and still get a lot of value and and run with it in their classroom. Because that's really one of my main missions is that I know how busy teachers are. And it always frustrated me that there was so much research out there, but it never seemed to reach the classroom or, or it did, but it would take 10 years. Mm-hmm. And so I've always wanted to bridge that gap. Um, and so I, I really enjoy doing the blog posts, but they are a lot more painful for me because I'm just a really, really slow writer. And so, and I just don't physically like sitting here trying, like, I just would rather talk. So I don't know. I think more than anything, I just like the variety, but you know, a lot more people are listening to podcasts now than they used to. So I've, I don't know, I've really recommitted my efforts to the podcast and, and really, you know, made sure that I'm constantly putting stuff out. I first, the first year or two, I put out like one episode every three or four months. I didn't really understand how it worked. So that I think is, uh, is ramping up quite a bit lately. Yeah. You think of how busy we all are, but we have more time in our day for audio content than anything else. You can't mow your lawn right. or go for a run and read a blog. So I think, yeah, that's why we chose podcast as well. Yeah, yeah. Let's, let's dive in a little to your podcast. I love it. You are so consistent with it. Most podcasts fizzle out after episode seven, and you are <laughs> 115 episodes in. So what, what's been your favorite episode or interview or topic that you've covered in one of those? I, still, to this day, my favorite episode is number four, which is such oh, a wow. long time ago. All yeah. downhill from there. I, I interviewed a friend of mine. This is when I didn't understand how to do distance podcasts, so I could only interview people in my house. And so I interviewed a friend of mine whose daughter has autism, and I had always been curious about their perspective on school and how, you know, she, at that point, her daughter was in like fourth grade. So they'd been through a couple years of school and just thought, what would, what should teachers know from your perspective? And, and she was just so raw and honest. And I mean, she even called me later and said, you can't publish that because if our daughter ever hears some of the stuff that I was talking about, like she'll just, she'll feel terrible. And I talked her into letting me do it. We changed her name. And I said, I think it's going to help so many people understand. And, um, and so she finally, she and her husband finally said, okay, that's okay. You can do it. And I just, I don't know. I just feel like it was a really special episode, but I've interviewed so many really smart people. That's what I feel so lucky about that. I get to just like, I mean, that my next episode is with Sal Khan, the guy who started Khan Academy. That's what I'm Stop editing later it. this afternoon. I know. Like, they contacted Ugh. me to see if I wanted to interview him. I was like, Duh. Shut up. Oh, <laughs> life know, goals. Right? <laughs> yeah. And I mean, that's what that's what is really neat is that I can, um, you know, I can like pick people's brain and record it. And, and then so many people get to benefit from it. That's the thing that's most exciting is when I get somebody who is – I mean, he's famous, but like even just, you know, a couple of weeks ago, I did something with Marissa Thompson on this strategy she came up with in her classroom called TQE. 
and we recorded it and we put it out there. And now every day I've got people on Twitter saying, I'm using it. My kids are loving it. We're getting these amazing conversations. And that is, that's an incredible feeling to know that I can do that just because I've built the platform for it. Um, so I would love it. Actually, you're, you're speaking, you're keynoting at South by Southwest EDU this year. And can you give us like a little preview of what you're, what you're going to be focusing on? (laughs) Yeah. Talk about getting an email that makes you like lose your mind. I would be so nervous. Well, I just was, I had just decided I was going to go, you know, as an attendee. And then they contacted me about being a speaker and I was like, okay, sure. And then a week later they were like, would you like to do the keynote? I was like, um, yes. So, um, it, it is called the aerodynamics of exceptional schools. And I've actually given it twice before. So the, the idea it's just it's a metaphor about flight and how to fly an airplane. You've got four different forces working, and two of them are are getting the plane to go forward, and two of them are going to drag it down. And so I kind of compared change in school to flight and how you know we've got all these great ideas, especially at these conferences. We get to the end of conferences and we're full of ideas that we want to take back to our schools, and we're so excited. And then we get back to our schools, and like five percent of what we thought we were going to do maybe actually happens. And so I sort of talk about that. Like, what could we be doing differently to get more of our great ideas to actually happen? Because I feel like right now in education, we know what we need to be doing differently. So what is stopping us? Like, we've already got all the models and we've got some, you know, really great, great, you know, other countries that we look at. And then we just kind of throw up our hands and go, what are you going to do? And all policy issues aside, I think there are things that we could be doing just in our schools to to affect change more effectively and quickly and and happily. So I kind of go through nine different principles that people can be following to make change happen. Do you care to give us one? Um, Yeah, I know I can. I can. Um, Awesome. Well, one of them is uh, is validate, which is I actually have a blog post all about validation. And I just think validation is one of the most um, powerful tools in terms of human communication that people fight you when they don't feel that their perspective is being heard. And so if we're in a school and we have this new idea and you have a lot of the teachers with their arms folded and they're like, "Mm, nope, not going to work, not going to do it. Like we can't ignore that. And we can't just write them off as problem people. Like what we need to do is listen to what their concerns are, validate them. And then they'll kind of loosen up a little bit more. You know, if somebody is really afraid of technology, for example, you can't just cheerlead them into getting better at it. Like it helps to say something like, yes, this app really scared me when I started using it too. Let me show you. Like just to know that they're not, there's nothing wrong with a person, you know, if they're a little bit freaked out about a change. And I feel like that really relaxes people. It makes them feel that they're accepted and that growth is possible. Just I've noticed this in all different kinds of scenarios. So validate is one of my nine tips. Wow. You're going to, you're going to crush it. It's going to be a standing O. And the awesome part about South by Southwest <laughs> is all those go on YouTube. So as soon as it's done, you're going to have 50,000 yeah, other people even watch more it. pressure, right? Yeah, it's going to yeah. be on YouTube immediately. No one checks out YouTube. I didn't know that. You yeah. can watch all those for, yep, you can like watch just all on the YouTube. Keynotes. Yeah. They're incredible. Yeah. I've been watching a lot of the old, the old keynotes this past week just to. Oh man. There goes my weekend. Yes. That's <laughs> awesome. <laughs> yeah. When I was there, I think it yeah. was Sal Khan who did it. He, he rocked the house, but he's no Jen Gonzalez. Oh, wow. So 
Well, validation kind of brings us to the topic that we wanted to pick your brain on today, which is that of school culture, like the building culture and classroom culture. And I think validating our students and validating our teachers is a huge component. But if we zoom back a little bit, why do you Mm -hmm. think that a positive school culture and classroom culture matters so much to learning? I think it's, I think it's just about everything. Honestly, I think without it, you can't get anything done. It's because we're humans. And so people respond to the mood in a room. They respond to the, whether or not they feel like they belong. I mean, that's Maslow, a sense of belonging. I've got a picture of it in my head right now, but you know, Maslow, you've got your food and shelter and safety at the bottom. And at the top, you've got, you know, intellectual stuff in the middle, you've got a sense of belonging, sort of emotional safety. And so that comes before the intellectual growth and stuff like that. And so for the kids and for the teachers, if we don't feel comfortable in the space that we're in, if we don't feel accepted and if we don't feel encouraged, we're going to be stalled at that level. Hmm. And I've worked in two different middle schools, one where the culture was pretty toxic. Teachers were unhappy and this, the, the students didn't do as well. And I've also worked in a school where the culture was pretty good and then got even better. One of my last years in this other school, they hired a new wave of like newer, younger teachers. And it wasn't the fact that they were young that made it different. It's just their personalities. There was one year where every time I f- was on my way to school, I felt like I was going to hang out with my friends. Ugh. And it was so great. Yep. Like it made the day so great. You could pop over in somebody's room and be like, hey, come stand out in the hall and watch my kids while I go to the bathroom. Like it didn't have to be this weird thing. Or And it was just, I felt like I was on a team. And you can definitely function in a school that has a mediocre culture. But once you've experienced a really supportive school culture, there's nothing like it. And so and and it just it's such a strong foundation for then people feel like they can really take risks and try stuff and be honest about the things they're struggling with when people don't feel comfortable with each other they just hold all that in and everybody just stagnates yeah i i completely agree with that having been in in both you're you can't yeah. quantify it but you can feel the difference of it yeah so i think one of the things that makes up a positive school culture is being surrounded by as you say marigolds and you're a marigold. Yeah. And that is an analogy that we used in one of our first podcasts with permission from you. But since we have mm-hmm. you on, it would be fantastic. Can you tell us the story of the marigold again and what our listeners can learn from that? Yeah. I obviously like metaphors if I'm using airplanes in my keynote. I was looking actually for a metaphor to describe because it was something that I always felt as a as a teacher myself. And then when I worked with student teachers, I I used to say to them all the time, the best piece of advice I can give you is to just surround yourself with good people. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of other more granular advice that you can get. But if you are around people that are supportive and who love teaching and who love kids, a lot of the other stuff is just going to come with that. So I, I was doing a little bit of research on, and I found this, this, notion of, of companion planting. Um, and, and I'm not a gardener at all. So I probably have represented this a little off for years and years, but apparently gardeners plant marigolds next to other plants that are a little bit more vulnerable because marigolds put off some kind of a scent or something that keeps away pests and it keeps away, uh, I think it's pests, maybe not weeds, but it keeps away bad things and it helps the young vulnerable plant 
to grow stronger. And so I, I, they put marigolds near tomatoes, for example. And I thought that's perfect because, and I kind of hate that it's a flower just because it sounds so flowery and people are like, find your marigold. And it's like, it sounds lighter and fluffier than it really is, but they're pretty potent. Like they, they protect those plants until they're strong enough to grow on their own. And I feel like we do this for each other as teachers. And a lot of people have pointed out to me over the years that this does not just apply to new teachers, that it applies to all of us, that we need to be around other people. But I feel like with new teachers, I can remember when you're working across the hall from somebody who I felt to be an incredibly, um, she just was worn out and toxic and she had seen better days as a teacher and she just really kind of infected everybody around her. And she got a student teacher one year who started off pretty positive. And I just remember watching this person evolve over the semester and she just became more and more like that host teacher. And I thought, man, that is a shame because she's mm -hmm. just around her. And she would start saying snarky things all the time about the kids and just, she really lost that spark. And so I just realized that, you know, who we spend our time with is who we become like. And so if we're around teachers who have a positive attitude, and I hate saying it that way again, because that's so overused that it really doesn't dig into the, the real essence of it, but it, that just makes a big, big difference in terms of dealing with this very challenging job. I love the way that the analogy puts the ownership, really, and the agency of positive school culture back with not just the principal, right? I mean, it's it's you and your colleagues mm -hmm. and how you relate to each other and what you talk about in the mm -hmm. teacher's lounge. And I'm, I'm curious for some tangible ways that you've seen teachers support each other in like, not necessarily even just praise and support and cheerleading, but also in criticism and coaching and pushing their, their colleagues forward. Well, you know, it's funny because I think a lot of teachers... Are, are perfectly willing to be mentors to, to newer teachers. And I, I think it's, they'll say things like, if you ever need anything, I'm here. Or, you know, come by and ask if you ever need anything. And, it, and they mean it, but a lot of teachers are kind of perfectionists. They don't want to ask for help. They don't want to show weakness. Even somebody who's brand new, they don't want to to do that. And so they they don't ask for the help. And so I think somebody who wants to really mentor a, a newer teacher needs to almost force themselves into that person's um, space and schedule and say, we're going to sit down and have, have a meeting. I want you to come into my room after school and just let's talk a little bit about how things are going because that sets up a formal opportunity for the person to, to really talk about it. I think also just sharing your own failures is huge. Sharing your own stories of, of failures because when somebody's coming into a school and they say, oh, everybody else here already knows what they're doing and you don't see the the work that it took to get there. And so I know that in some schools they have like marigold lunches now that, that teachers have made themselves into marigold committees and they'll get all the new team and they'll have like a once a month lunch or something. I think that's a really nice idea, but it probably would be even better if they if they're structuring that time and really talking about hard things during that mm. that half an hour as opposed to just chatting and eating you know have the the mentor teachers go around and say you know we're, I'm going to talk about one time I really screwed up <laughs> and it's it it loosens things up and it makes the the newer teachers feel comfortable and then they can realize okay it's not just me so i think 
things like that um, can really, really be helpful to to building those relationships and also just modeling a love for the job and, and a love mm. for the students in the way you talk about your own work. I remember, I don't, I don't remember who it was, but I saw a, a talk one time and this principal was talking about his amazing staff and they sounded incredible. And he said that one of his teachers every day when she pulled into the parking lot, just told herself again and again, I got the job, I got the job. And I mean, <sighs> not that we all have to go, you know, that overboard and be that grateful every day. I th- that's amazing. But just a really, that's a, that's a mind shift that really helps us to reframe how we walk into the classroom and who we are that day. Absolutely. Yeah. Gosh, if we could all go back to that day, we got hired. Right. Right? (laughs) And how excited you are and like, oh, I can't wait to meet my students. And how do then, let's talk a little bit about teacher self-care because I I think that's an important component to it that we don't spend enough time talking about. It's an enormously stressful job and, you know, teachers can't, you you can't put other people's oxygen masks on before you put on your own, et cetera, et cetera. How How have you seen uh, educators or schools or cultures or just individuals really taking care of themselves uh, in the midst of these jobs? I I would say everything that I have learned about teacher self-care has been from my friend Angela Watson, who I talk to every single day on Boxer. And she's the master at this, at at balance and mindset. And um, so some of the stuff that she shared with me that seems to be the most helpful, one has to do with really watching how you spend spend your downtime. So keeping an eye on the mindless scrolling of on social media and the unintentional breaks that you take throughout the day and really um, being more intentional with your time so that when you've decided this is social time, it's going to be social time. When you've decided this is work, it's just going to be work and really drawing those boundaries a little bit more strongly. I think also it helps to recognize that, um, that those relationships at work and at home are are feeding you as much as the work is. And I'm I'm a super hardcore workaholic. I have to force myself all the time to do more social things, but I've gotten better at it. And you know, part of it is I've read studies on longevity and how how important it really is to to nurture your relationships with people. So, you know, I I've, I've seen how how valuable that is and so you know, it's an important thing to to schedule in, really, mm-hmm. um, to schedule in anything that's self-care. If you say you're eventually going to do it, then it doesn't happen. But if you put it on your calendar or put it on your daily to-do list, especially if you're a to-do list kind of person who likes to check things off, you can, you can do that. When I was first starting teaching, I had a kind of a weird relationship with somebody that I worked with. And I, I liked her. She was a, a new teacher like me, but I just kind of felt like something was a little off. So I actually like put on my like weekly to-do list, like find a way to connect with Kimberly. And like, <laughs> I make a point to like go into her classroom and just like ask her how, how, how's it going? And we would, and we ended up getting very close, but like, if you're type A, you may have to just schedule it in anything like that. Hmm. And the awkward part so, of that story was your calendar was public and she was really weirded out. Like, whoa, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> she is a stalker. No, I, I, think that, I think that's fantastic. And you had mentioned you worked in a school where you felt like you're going to hang out with your friends. And yeah. one of the, my wife, who's also a teacher, one of the biggest fights we would get in our first year of teaching, which was our first year of marriage, which was yikes, uh, was I really wanted to invest in those friendships. And so every off hour I was investing in those and socializing. And then I'd bring all my prep home and would have just tons of work. And she was the opposite end. Like she wanted to spend time with me. And so she would 
buckle down and get that done. You have a great YouTube video where you talk about how teachers can balance that. Uh, what would be your advice for balancing relationships at work with getting work done? It, it, teaching is so endless, you could always be working on it. Mm. I mean, I think it's also just getting realistic with what you can do. I mean, I used to bring home 300% more than I was actually going to get done. Just, you mm-hmm. know, thinking, well, maybe I'll get it done quickly and then I'll do a little bit more. And it's just after a while you start having to learn, you just can't. But, you know, there's also some stuff you can be doing um, in terms of grading. Like I graded way too much when I was in the classroom. I gave points for way too many things. And now if I could go back, I would be calling a lot more things practice and not necessarily grading them so that I didn't have to be constantly taking stuff home. I think I would just simplify my processes so that I didn't have to bring so much work home in the first place. Gosh, I don't know. I still struggle with it all the time. Mm-hmm. So so balancing home and school, I think it's just one of those things where you have to constantly tinker with it and be aware of how you're doing and, um, and, and, and keep retuning that. Yeah, almost treat it like action research, like what's working for me and what's not, and right. being really intentional and, and mindful you know, about that. Change too. That's going to yeah. change depending on the family needs and what's going on at work and, and everything. But yeah, I mean, that's the thing is that work can change in a heartbeat, but your family is always going to be there. So just kind of remembering that is also really important. I think teaching just attracts a lot of people who are achievement oriented. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and that's for me, I get a lot more satisfaction about something that I can actually see that, you know, I achieve. If I've got a cranky teenager who doesn't want to hang out with me anyway, it's just a lot easier to go. <laughs> yeah, it's an easy decision. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, that, that, that tends to backfire after a while if I keep avoiding it. So... Yeah. Uh, one thing that I did want to follow up on. So you talked a little bit about consuming social media and kind of staying away from the endless, endless scroll, like you learned from Angela Watson. But so, how do you consume social media? I mean, you're you're present on it all the time. Mm-hmm. Are you just really intentional about who you pick, or do you you know set time aside to go and learn from it? Because I, I that's a hard thing that you know a lot of people are asking. Well, I I love Twitter, but how do I use it as a teacher when I'm already so buried with other things? And you end up yeah. you know just scrolling for 45 minutes. Right. Right. Asking for a friend, but not really. It's for me. <laughs> um, one thing that has helped me with Twitter in particular, because that's probably the the social media form that I use the most for like for education reasons. I don't use Twitter really at all for social. I go to Facebook for that because I'm old. <laughs> but yep, um, Twitter, it helps to, if you've ever tried the lists feature, that helps a lot to make lists of people, like I've got a a list of just math teachers that I've sort of identified through Twitter. So if I'm looking around for stuff on math or if I need to ask people, for example, then I'll go to that list and it will only show in my feed posts from those people. Hmm. Um, So because, you know, once you're following a couple thousand people, it starts to just become ridiculous, you know, and all of those people could be using Twitter for different reasons and show, you know, showing like pictures of their kids playing baseball. And it's like, so (laughs) I feel like that helps a lot. Um, And participating in the occasional Twitter chat is also, you know, a way to do that. I don't know. I actually, I use Twitter for research a lot of times. If I'm looking for really current research on something, I will just use that search bar and put keywords in there Hmm. and I'll end up getting lots and lots of good stuff, or at least I'll find out who out there really knows a lot about that topic. So I Hmm. I would love, we, you talked kind of about Maslow, the need for culture. We talked about building culture, but I think we would miss out on a big opportunity if we didn't talk about an individual teacher's classroom culture. So in your experience with all the people 
hit you up on Twitter and being in classrooms, what are some high leverage practices that teachers use to promote a positive classroom culture? You know, I think right now, anything at all that gets kids talking to each other is really key. Um, the, the, my kids come home all the time saying that they didn't do anything at all. They just sat all day. And I'm just like, do you not ever get into like group discussions about things? No, 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 no. So especially now in 2019, like we, it's so easy to go through an entire day without having a conversation with anybody in school right now. Anyway, we're still meeting in rooms physically together. So we really need to be taking advantage of that. And, and people really do get a high off of talking to other people, but they're afraid of it because we're getting worse and worse at doing it. So any type of discussion, and there's so many different types, there's like philosophical chairs and there's just, you know, there's so many different ways that you can get kids talking to where they don't have to necessarily initiate the conversation, but then they get a chance to talk to each other. Doing good classroom icebreakers is key. And also I've, I've, introduced this idea a couple of years ago called the 360 spreadsheet, which is uh, a, a way of just keeping track of information that you learn about your students. If you find out that your kid, one of your kids really loves Hershey's Kisses, for example, you stick this on a spreadsheet and you collect this information on them over the course of a year, find out about their, their home situation, you know, who lives in their house, what's the name of their dog. And it's just a way of building relationships with them. I just, I think if, especially if you have a lot of kids, you need systems to actually build those relationships and maintain them. And it's really easy to let kids fall through the cracks if you're not doing something like that. And we had a chance to talk to Dan Heath, who wrote Power of Moments, and he talks about the importance of that relationship. And just a little thing, like you get an extra Hershey kiss that you don't want to eat because of the calories in it. You bring it to a kid. That That's something they remember five years later and totally. took nothing yeah. on your part. So yeah, when you talked about we need kids talking more, Totally agree. You have some really tangible ways and you have YouTube videos teaching teachers how to do that. I would love if you could talk to us about the tool equity maps. And then could you tell us about chat stations too? Because I think those are two super cool, tangible ways teachers can get kids talking more and and have impact with that. Yes. So um, Equity Maps is a is an iPad, currently just an iPad tool, although I've seen people asking him over and over again now on Twitter to please get a Chromebook tool added. So he's working on it, but it is a way of mapping out a classroom conversation. So if you have kids like in a circle, for example, you create a, a map on the app and then you start a recorder and it records the classroom audio as kids are talking. And as, you know, Stephanie says something, you, you click Stephanie's, you know, icon in the app and it, it records that she was the one talking at that time. And then if it goes over to Griffin and you hit Griffin's icon. And so what you have at the end of this is a, a real time map of who participated and for how long. And so it's a way of seeing how equitable is the class the participation in class discussions. I need and that for meetings. Do that for the podcast. In adult yeah. therapy groups. And he said right. he, he, that would really help in those too, in like group therapy to see who, who participated for documenting it. Wow. So yeah, it's got a lot of applications. It's a really, really neat tool. Cause I mean, I think a lot of times teachers have jimmied up like ways of doing this in the past. I would put little check marks next to the kids' names when they would talk, but this really shows more of the dynamics because it kind of draws lines between kids. So you can see like who's going back and forth a lot and so it's just it's a neat tool. So app on um, app on the teacher uh, teacher iPad. But now I was thinking, as you explained, chat stations. Couldn't a kid get that in a one to one on their iPad and use it to monitor chat stations? So could you tell us what uh, chat stations are and then 
How they, yeah. So chat, chat stations is just something I came up with a long, long time ago because I wanted my kids sort of more actively participating. And so instead of having them do like a worksheet one day that would have like, I don't know, seven or eight different sort of questions, I decided to sort of break that up into just little pieces of paper, basically, that I stuck around the room. So every station just had a different question and I covered it up with... Um, like a piece of construction paper so that the question was on the outside and the answer was on the inside. And <clears throat> the idea was, and these would be kind of meaty problems. It wasn't just, you know, two plus two or whatever. And then the kids got into groups and each group took a station. And so they would go and stand and they'd read the question. They would discuss with each other what they felt the, you know, an answer was or what they, their response was. And then they would flip up and see what I said. So it would even work for even a discussion mm. of like, you know, what's on the inside is sort of like my take on it, but their take might've been something different. So it doesn't have to even be a right or wrong thing, but it can be, can be done like as a review. And so you give, you know, five minutes for each station and then everybody rotates and they go to the next one and you can have them record things on a clipboard if you want, or they can just rotate and talk, but it's just, it's a way to get them <laughs> a little bit more um, active and participating. I mean, just standing up and moving. We do that all the time. We'll have, we'll have people have a seventh inning stretch or whatever, just to move around, have them do that while they're discussing content instead. So that's it. And, and it, it's an adaptable type of uh, structure that can be used. And it's also a lot, after I called it chat stations, then I found this thing online called Gallery Walk, which is very similar. So it's sort of the same as Gallery Walk. I just didn't know that that's what it was called. Mm, yeah, but man, classroom discussions with 30 kids was one of the hardest things of all time. And so just taking yeah. all the discussion questions and putting them around the room, having them go in groups of four, it's going to be so high leverage. So I I ate that up and regretted that I didn't use that for seven years in the classroom. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And it's nice because you can float around and listen and, and monitor those conversations and have more one-on-ones with kids as they're going going around. Yeah. It's a, it's nice and simple. And I, I know we, you know, we're we're I keep going on bird walks away from school culture, but there there's so many things I want to ask you about. And I know that you've had a lot of posts and have probably done a ton of research around grading and grading practices. And so for, I mean, even for conversations like that where students are floating around and talking and reflecting, you know, I, I'd love to hear your perspectives on what we grade and how what we grade matters and how that shows the value to our students for what they're doing in the classroom. Yeah. Well, you know, a lot of, I think if a lot of teachers were to look at what they give grades to, so much of those grades are for things that have nothing to do with what our stated standards are. So that could be everything from just doing homework, which really is supposed to be sort of the learning and the formative assessment. And yet, and I used to do this too. I mean, I'd have kids go home and fill out their vocabulary books and then they'd bring it in and I'd mark stuff wrong and take points off. And it was like, mm -hmm. they're supposed to be learning these. And so any kind of formative assessment, I don't think should be graded. I think only a summative should be graded. And also when, when teachers develop rubrics for major projects, sometimes they give way, way too many points for things like creativity or neatness or, you know, artistic talent, things that really, I mean, this would be like a social studies project where they're supposed to be learning something about history. And, and, you know, sometimes the requirements for these things are so ridiculous that really parents are the ones who end up doing it. Mm -hmm. And so that's an equity issue then. If you've got parents who don't have the funds or the transportation or the work schedule to actually like drive their kids around and get supplies, I mean, then you're talking, you're grading a kid based on their socioeconomic status. 
So there's a lot to it. And, and, and then there's also the question of, you know, why are we killing ourselves grading every little thing anyway? You know, we could, and the thing is, it's not, I don't want to be dumb about this. I get that we need kids to do things and kids are just going to be like, well, if it's not for a grade, I'm not doing it. But I do think that's a classroom culture issue too. You know, if we say we're going to do two practices, these two days, and then when we do this on Friday, it's going to be for a grade. But what you get in these next two days is free feedback so that you know how you're going to do on Friday. Like there's a way of, I think, couching things with your students to get buy-in. And and if they feel like you like them and you know them and, and you've got a good the the room is a family, they're going to get on board. It's not going to be just like, what are you going to give me for this? <laughs> you know, um, it's all sort of part of the same thing, I think. Oh, the room is a family. That's beautiful. I'm going to carry that with me. That's really nice. Because <laughs> that's, I mean, that that's it, just how you talked about your staff and how you guys all got along and we're friends. I mean, that's a family and having the classroom yeah. be a family. That's, that's huge. And so I'd love to yeah. just take that one a little bit further too, and, and think a little bit about, um, student like self-assessment then and, and assessment capable learners. And, you know, what are some ways that we can, again, build classroom culture by getting students, by allowing students more agency and control in that, in that perspective? One person to, to look into for student self-assessment is Star Saxton. She's done a lot of work on that. But I, I do think that um, modeling and assessing things as a class, uh, one thing I used to do a lot with writing is just putting up models of writing. It wasn't necessarily the students. Sometimes it was stuff I created that had obvious you know, issues in it. And we would talk as a group, let's, let's grade this person and how are they doing and what feedback would we give them? And once students see that in action, they're better able to then look at their own stuff. I think it's Todd Finley. He's an Edutopia writer and he's got a website called Todd's Brain. He's got this thing called Letter to the Class where he would read a bunch of papers and they would all have similar mistakes. So instead of giving everybody feedback individually, he would write the, a letter to the class saying, here are some problems I'm seeing in a lot of your writing. And huh. that would be a quicker way of giving them feedback, right? And then they could all look at their work and you know, half of them can be like, yep, I did that. So Hmm. Gosh, there are just a bunch of things. I'm thinking Christy Loudon wrote a, wrote a piece for me a couple of years ago um, called Delaying the Grade, where instead of giving students their grade back on something, she would give it back to them with the rubric and make them grade themselves first and guess what they got. <laughs> and she'd leave comments so that they would see some of the feedback she got. And then she'd give them the actual points at the end. They'd have a conference about it. So that also got them to self-assess a lot more deeply than what they would typically do, which is to to get the paperback, look at the number, and toss it basically. Hmm. And so, when you're, what what's one thing that you wish you would stop seeing as far as practices for grading are concerned? One, the first thing that came to mind because there's probably a lot of things, but one thing that used to bug me a lot is when my kids got into fourth grade. This happened with all of them. I guess the teachers had decided that it was time for the kids to start understanding what letter grades, how that translated to like the points because they were going to shift from primary grading, which was all just, you know, thumbs up, thumbs down or whatever Mm -hmm. to like actual letter grades. So they started putting letter grades on everything. So, so like if my kids did a quiz that had, you know, eight questions on it and they got two wrong, that was automatically like a D or something like that. And they would write the letter D on the paper and my kid and I, and I just thought, how is that helping them? Like, I don't understand. You know, for first of all, I've got a problem with somebody doing an eight-question quiz and actually giving them a – I mean, you, you can't go wrong with that without – anyway. So yeah, I didn't yeah. really see the value in in doing that. Hmm. So that, that would be one is sort of just the overuse of letter grades. 
Anyway, that's just one off well, the top of my head. <laughs> let's transition to your your um, tech guide. Then we would, you know, obviously it's a thing that everybody should look at and download and use all the time. Uh, what's your favorite tech tool from that recently released guide? So, well, we talked about Equity Maps. That was one that I had pointed out, but. Um, this one is kind of silly and I don't know how much academic value it has, but it's called GeoGuessr hmm. and um, it's G-O-G-E-O and then G-U-E-S-S-R. It's a game where uh, you get plopped down in the middle of someplace in the middle of the world, um, but it's Google Street View, which I'm, huh. I'm guessing you guys have probably seen where you're like actually looking at it physically from all those little Google car photos yep. and you have to guess on a map where you are. Um, but what you're you're allowed to move around, so you can move the car forward, you can turn, you can look at signs, and um, oh my gosh, it's super super addictive. Oh, I want to play. It's just yeah, and and it's like one of those things that I feel like teachers could use as a you know a sponge activity or a reward for kids you know getting done early for something like that. Um, and I was really shocked by how many resources I was actually having to pull. To, to make guesses, you know, language resources and um, geography, like terrain, like I'm looking around like, okay, this is obviously like not this. I don't know. It's just. Oh, to it's just I, I've had teachers because we're in a one-to-one -one iPad. And so they'll have kids turn on the screen recorder and then document mm -hmm. their critical thinking and the research that they're doing. Like, oh, I wanted to look up. I saw this on a street sign and it looked like this language. And here's why I made that guess. Exactly. So it's kind of teaching like digital research and just critical thinking yeah. skills in that way. Well, so and I yeah, and I'm, I was opening up a bunch of tabs. I was like copying mm. text from signs that I saw into Google Translate to try to figure uh, out what language it was. And huh. it's just, yeah. It's and yeah, you can challenge fun. a friend on it, which is super cool. Yes. Yeah. 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 Absolutely. Huh. So, so we could extract information from you and your 115 episodes and dozens of blog posts and videos all day, but we are going to let you run because... We know you need to, but can you tell our <laughs> listeners where they should go to keep learning from and with you? Yes. Uh, easiest thing is to just go to cultofpedagogy.com. And from there, there are links to all of my different social media channels so that people can pick the one they like. And, um, and yeah, and that's, and, and if you are a podcast listener, which anybody obviously listening right now is, um, I have a fairly robust podcast, a cult of pedagogy podcast. So those would be the two, two places to start. The cult awesome. of pedagogy. Oh my God. <laughs> Great song. Great oh, we song. better cut this off. Yeah, we should. <laughs> All right, Becky, let's close up shop. What did you learn? Well, I always learn a ton from this woman um, and, and the cult of pedagogy. My, my favorite part of this conversation, I think, is when we talked about how the both establishment and maintenance of a strong culture in a school rests on everyone's shoulders, not just the principal of the building. I thought that was right on. How about you, Ben? Yeah, I, I agreed with that a ton, um, and that was a huge takeaway for me. But then I also really loved what she said about anything we can do to get kids talking more and really liked that app that she promoted as well. So we are linking that in the show notes. I also thought it could be kind of a cool idea, Becky, since she is such a wealth of information. Could we each share what is our favorite blog post or uh, piece of content she's put out there to direct our listeners to? What do you like from uh, Cold of Pedagogy? Awesome idea. Uh, one of the most 
most recent ones that keep sticking in my head, and it's it's most of the time when she releases a podcast, she'll have a blog episode or a blog post that goes along with it. So it's a really nice pairing. Um, but one of the recent ones was her interview with Pedro Nogueira, who I'd love to get on this show as well. So if you're listening, Pedro, I'm going to reach out to you. Uh, but if together they kind of talk through 10 ways to address inequities in education, and uh, he comes up with some really tangible examples of how to create community partnerships that will promote student well-being and achievement. It's pretty great. Uh, I also recommend signing up for her newsletter. You get a ton of free resources from Cult of Pedagogy. How about you, Ben? Yeah, I'm pretty fond of her YouTube stuff. Um, and one of her more popular videos, I think it's close to half a million views, which is pretty remarkable. Uh, but she has a video called The Five-Second Solution for a Talkative Class. And it's more than just clickbait. All right, that's an awesome title. But it's just the idea of waiting five seconds before you give directions just for that silence. And I know that I hate uh, quiet, um, especially like when I'm in front of a group. And so that was a huge takeaway for me was like waiting for kids to be quiet and with you is is just an amazing solution for a uh, talkative class, but making sure that you're very clear in your instructions and what's going down. So... Nice. Well, if you want to hear more from Jennifer Gonzalez, it's easy to do. Um, definitely go to her website, Cult of Pedagogy, listen to the podcast, uh, read her blogs, get her newsletter. Um, and also the keynote that she did at South by Southwest about uh, the aerodynamics of exceptional schools was a pretty interesting take on the forces that propel us towards progress as a system. So thanks as always for listening and have a great generic time of day.